Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the national security industrial base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert Lauren Badula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and Special Operators, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. Lauren Badula here with Hondo Gertz and today's guest, Lauren Knausenberger. Lauren, we are so excited to have you here on the heels of just leaving the Air Force where you served as Chief Information Officer and have a great reputation for driving innovation and disruptive tech. So very excited to get into that today. But also just your your story, Lauren, how prior to joining the Air Force, you spent time in the private sector. You were an entrepreneur. You were a venture capitalist. Uh, so you've seen both the private sector the government work, and, and now you're back out. So, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. Awesome. It's so great to be here. And, um, you know, it's actually pretty awesome that we're doing this in person, too. Like, it still feels actually really great to be able to do this together. Um, great to see you only six weeks after having a baby. Thank you. And always great to see Hondo. And I love that you've got your your big gulp cult <laughs> cup ready to go, um, you know, just ready to roll in here. But it, it's so special to be here with you guys today. Um, so yeah, I guess I do have a different kind of story coming into the government. And it it really happened by accident. I think that's the best way to say it. Um, one day, just a, an Air Force captain that um, worked with my husband years before called him up and just said, hey, we need, we need more companies like my wife's in government. Um, can I have your wife's number? Because I really want to take her out for a beer. And so my husband thought it was absolutely hilarious and um, did give him my number. And we went down to Blue Jacket Brewery, which is still one of my favorite places to have a beer in the Navy Yard. And um, literally on a bar napkin, um, drew out what ended up becoming a good part of the innovation framework for the Department of the Air Force. Um, I did not know this at the time. I was just having a beer with the captain. It was a really great energizing discussion. He had heard a, a speech actually by then C CIO, um, Lieutenant General Bill Bender, um, who's now retired. And he was he just was inspired to do something. And he just, he just wanted to talk and bounce ideas. And as he was sharing problems with me, I was getting so excited about the problem space. And I realized as I was chatting with him um, and chatting with some others along the way that I missed the mission and that I was really excited to help in any way that I could. And so um, that conversation actually led to that bar napkin becoming a PowerPoint presentation for Monday morning. Um, he had to brief uh, General Kreider, who at that point was working for General Holmes, who later became the ACC commander. And uh, General Kreider became the first uh, chief data officer and then the first uh, chief technology and innovation officer for the Space Force. So. Um, went and briefed her after the initial briefing by the captain, met General Holmes, and then it all came back to General Bender. And um, I still did not see service in any way in my future. Um, I was enjoying my entrepreneurial life. I was enjoying helping small companies. Um, but one day, uh, General Bender called me down to the Pentagon for a very mysterious meeting, and he kind of hit me through the heart when he said one thing. He said, when you talk about these things, I believe that we can do them. And I was just like, oh my God. You know, I had, I had never met a general in my life, and here I am at the Pentagon, and this general says this to me. And even then, I was thinking, this is totally not my path. But I was so humbled 
that I said, I will really give this some thought. And and the funny thing is that I chatted with a bunch of my mentors, and this is not a slight to the Navy. I had a Navy grandpa, <laughs> loved the Navy. But most of my advisors and friends um, would, would kind of laugh when I first said I wanted to go do a transformational effort in the DOD. And then, they, then they'd kind of pause for a minute and say, well, which service? <laughs> and then when I said Air Force, said, you've got a snowball's chance, you know? Um, so um, yeah, so I ended up jumping in and I realized that, that I did miss the mission. And I almost, it, I almost got to the point, you know, internally where I was just like, you know what, you are a hypocrite. You are a complete hypocrite. If you do not get in here and do what you can to solve these problems that have bothered you from a number of vantage points in your career. And so I jumped in, I had such an incredible time those couple of years, just meeting amazing people, doing great things, empowering people, getting things done. Um, and then I thought I was gonna run off maybe after a year or two. And uh, then kind of jumped into the CIO job and you know, six, seven years later, um, finally, finally did um, sail off into the sunset as they say. Well, it, it's great to see you here, Lauren, and, and be with the two Laurens here. So this will be easy. I'll be able to remember names pretty well. Um, but I want to back up the bus a little bit. So so tell our, our listeners a little bit about what you were doing, kind of where you grew up and what you were doing before this kind of seminal meeting. And then we'll we'll get to uh, our life in crime in the in the Pentagon and in the Trail of Tears here. But what, what was happening before that? What, where, where did you get started? What what got you in the tech community and what led up to that kind of seminal meeting with Joel Bender? Well, sure. Um, well, if we go way back, which is, I think, maybe where, where you're pushing us. Um, so I was a I was a 17 year old kid with a top secret security clearance working at the NSA. Um, incredible job for a 17 year old um, and got to do a lot of really interesting things. Um, some of it had to do with, you know, back in the day, InfoSec, you know, we didn't really talk about cyber um, you know, kind of late nineties. Do I sound really old school when I say that a little bit? You're, you're young compared to me. So. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, just did some incredible. How, and how'd you get to, how did NSA find you and get you there as a 17 year old? So I believe at the time NSA had kind of a statewide and especially neighboring counties recruiting effort um, where they were looking at test scores from high school students. And I believe that is how it happened because I was I was a local kid. I, I all public school in Prince George's County um, and I was going to Eleanor Roosevelt High School right over in Greenbelt. Um, and so I think that I think they had an eye on that science and tech program a little bit at the time. Um, and so actually one of my uh, at least one of my friends uh, from the school also did the internship program with me over at NSA. And a geeky fact, actually, uh, so that friend and I, we did some research, uh, reverse engineering integrated circuits. It was actually a fighter, uh, a fighter plane use case, uh, actually. Um, and we we took that research to the International Science Fair, so so that was so that was kind of neat. That was kind of my first time hitting you know fighter jets was reverse engineering integrated circuits that had come out of fighter jets. So then you go to NSA. Yeah. What happens? So went to NSA, had a grand old time, graduated high school, went to college, 
didn't think I'd do anything in government again. Um, you know, uh, I, I did uh, I did do an internship. Actually, you know what? I take that back. One of my first internships in in college was with a company called Answer. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right there in Roslyn. I remember calling the Air Force the Blue People. Um, and, and we were talking about the blue people walking all over Roslyn and, uh, actually was working for, I was doing a project on satellite trajectory for SAF AQ. I hadn't thought about this in years. Um, and then, uh, I was a bartender for a summer. That was fantastic. Um, there were a couple of, you know, different things in there. Oh, I configured satellites one summer. So I did all sorts of things kind of at the periphery. And then when I graduated from college, I went to work for a company called American Management Systems. And um, it's kind of funny how many people from AMS I'm running into now. Um, but then uh, ended kind of back on the mission side. Uh, CGI purchased AMS. And I was going to go to CGI. But my clearance came back through because someone figured out, oh, yeah, you had a clearance back in the day. Let's get you back in there. So went over to CACI. Um, and uh, actually got pulled into CIA um, by, you know, there was a case officer, uh, you know, I say wandering the halls, probably looking for someone who has had a cheap enough bill rate to throw into this project that they didn't know what it was. And um, so I went over to CIA for this very mysterious project, and that ended up being my first transformational project, um, working with the government, working with um, a defense contractor, and uh, really uh, that, that actually was the first agile implementation for CIA. Um, and it also had just really interesting worldwide implications. Um, and then went and did another program transformation, went back to corporate, um, got to manage um, a lot of the finance and technology business um, for a defense contractor. Um, and then kind of went the other way again. You know, went to Wharton Business School, um, did some investing, um, helped start a few companies, started a company. Um, and then I got that mysterious call that kind of pulled everything back full circle where I could come in and serve. But I think that at that time coming in to serve, it had been so helpful that I had kind of gone the other way. Um, and, and in many ways, I, I think that's very healthy. I think I've heard you talk about that, Hondo, and, and Will Roper and many others um, about how we, we hope that there's a bit of a revolving door. And I think that the perspective is invaluable, and and I loved it. Um, so um, yeah, so we'll see we'll see what happens next. That's something we talk a lot about on our show, just the importance of cross pollination between the private sector and and government. And I think your story exemplifies that in such a great way. Um, and and something, Lauren, that you were so clear about through action as you were CIO with the Air Force was your interest in trying to bring in the high tech sector and startups and non-traditional players to do business with DOD. Can you talk a little bit about why you see that as so important? Yeah, so it's it's always been so important. And I think that I think we've 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 have forgotten about that occasionally. Um, over the past couple of decades. But I mean, you go back to World War II and it was interchangeable. Um, you know, I look at a lot of the most exciting technology that we use today. A lot of it started in the DOD and then the private sector did something amazing with it. Um, GPS, you know, DOD developed it for nukes, spent billions of dollars. But I can order a pizza. I can be like, hey, honey, are you on your way home? Oh, yes. Well, then why are you still in the office? Yeah. <laughs> that, that's never happened, right? Share my location. Um, yeah, totally. Um, you know, people can make sure their kids are safe. Um, you know, when order an Uber, um, it started with DOD tech, but with commercial making a gazillion use cases out of it. Um, the glass for our iPhones. Um, 
the internet. And actually, um, I, I didn't know this until recently, but actually, um, so DARPA, we all know DARPA, you know, kind of started the started the internet. Um, I didn't realize that DARPA had done the foundational uh, technology for cloud computing 50 years before we had uh, AWS roll out the global cloud. So um, I think it's so important that you have the intense research and mission and investment of government tied to the commercial industry, um, driving all sorts of innovation that goes beyond that. And and I know that one thing that, that you hear a lot in government, um, and it's true, it's, hey, Silicon Valley moves so much faster than us. A lot of that, I would posit, and this is why also small businesses are so important and startups are so important, um, a lot of startups can leverage that foundation. You have the cloud, you have software, you can laser focus on solving one problem. And you have to laser focus on solving that one problem. That's how you're gonna raise capital. That's how you're going to test and take over a new market. And that intense focus is something that I think startups do really well and they're incentivized in exactly the right way. But they are able to ride on that foundation that came before them without all of the, the debt that is uh, characteristic of that in, in large organizations. And so I think if we can continue to move forward with that beautiful balance, um, I think really good things happen. And, and I think the government recognizes this. I think we all know this. We look at different ways to make it work and for the incentives to align. And there are some places where we do a really great job and there are some places where we have some room to go. So um, um, you and I spent a lot of time in the Pentagon together um, trying to help uh, the Pentagon achieve kind of outcomes, some of that through changing culture. And, and, and one of the things I really liked about you is you were always, you know, trying to change the discussion from no because to yes if. Uh, and, and what's your perspective having spent time there? You know, many of the folks we talked to would claim, you know, constraints from Congress or constraints from law or constraints. And it was all about why you couldn't do something versus why you could. Uh, how did your perspective change kind of over your time in the Pentagon? And, and what can other leaders still in the Pentagon take from that kind of your experience? So if I, if I look at that whole problem space, what I will say is that before I dove into it, I, I saw a lot of policy and regulatory issues. As I dove into it, I saw Congress just exasperated. You know, just the, the staffers saying, for the love of God, just tell us what to do. You know, tell us what you need in the NDAA to make sure that you have nothing in your way that is within our control. And so um, I'll, I'll, I'll toss this back at you in a minute because, you know, you are both uh, pretty solid acquisition experts here on, on whether you agree with me on kind of the, the policy and regulatory issue not necessarily being a, a, a barrier. Um, I do see... I don't know if I'd even call it culture. Um, it, there's some elements of culture, but I think that um, in, in the way that culture is what you repeatedly do, um, I think that in some ways we're too fragmented in the way that we make decisions about small businesses. And because of that, we're really good at starting small businesses. We're not great at the transition. There are a couple of groups that are really good at, at picking winners and pulling them through. I don't think the PEOs are enga as engaged as they should be, potentially, and it's not their fault. I mean, it's just the way that we've designed the system. Um, but I think if we can find a way to get the PEOs more engaged in scaling for the things that they truly need, that, that is something that, um, that I think would be very helpful. But ultimately, um, 
it's really hard to have a very fragmented system where there are gaps in training for what true differentiation is. Um, and there's also varying degrees of the applicability of the tech. Um, you know, if you have a billion dollar addressable market with your tech, that's kind of that's kind of an easy decision to kind of to move forward. If you have a place where you can use that tech exactly one time and it's only in that PEO, then that PEO is probably the only one that can make that decision. And you have to figure out how to compensate the company for bringing that bespoke tech to that use case or think through whether there's a broader way to apply that technology or that use case than that one little place. But we all have to take a step then above the PEO and really work toward a, mo a more cohesive, well-communicated strategy that ties together those incentives and that spend to get there. And that is really hard in organizations the size that we have in the military with folks that rotate a lot and who aren't trained to make the decisions that way. But I would love to throw it back at you um, or at either of you because, I mean, this is, this is your wheelhouse. Yeah, I think, um, I, and we've had a couple of guests before talk about for an organization to transform, it's got to get to kind of a base level of competence. And without that competence, it's you're, you're, you have champions, but not any scaling kind of momentum to go behind it. Um, and so I do think one of the challenges to scale in the department is get the overall competence and infrastructure to the point that allows you to scale. Uh, and, and I don't know if you had the same experience kind of leading transformation in the private sector versus in the government. The size is so big, the scale, it can be daunting. Um, but I do agree with you. It's it's uh, a vision and habits. It's there, We place most of the obstacles in front of us ourselves, and then they're reinforced by our habits. Um, and that would go forward, go forward with that. But, you know, I think what you and your counterparts, Aaron, and then the Army did was really try and level up the competence to even know the questions to ask and the and the uh, the infrastructure we need to put in place what's your sense is that if you look back on your accomplishments would that be one of them of actually raising the overall organizational competence to a level to actually start going after these things so i don't know i i don't know what percentage of credit i can give to any one entity on that but i will say that over the past six years that I've had the pleasure of serving in the military, the level of understanding and competence has risen significantly. And I think that one thing that, that we can say is that we have been able to better provide platforms for people to do their jobs. And that means that people can start innovating at a higher level. They don't have to reinvent the thing that we could just buy. I mean, they still do, honestly, in some places. But on a lot of the big enterprise solutions, they work well. And they enable a different level of speed and collaboration. And so that is a very good thing. It's great to hear your experience in dealing with the, the Hill and, and your take on the policy and authorities that you had to leverage. Can you talk about any hurdles that you face that we can learn from for strength and collaboration between tech and DOD? Yeah, I think um, I think that that is a little, the biggest hurdle that I see is a little bit cultural. Um, and actually, I want to I want to kind of back up about ten seconds for a moment and share that. Um, on the cultural side of moving technology through, I really appreciated General Brown's recent letter that doubled down on, look, 
if you think that there is a policy in place, we're not even gonna bother changing it now. Just go use common sense. We ha- you were there to lead, go. Because one thing I did see is that people were, people love to follow the policies. They love to, pol- to, to follow anything that was written in front of them that gave them guidance. It was part of their ethos almost. And so for him to say, all right, when that doesn't make sense, you know, figure out what does, go. Because people, I think, some people had been unhindered by that for a long time, but some people still were. Um, and so I thought that was, that was so good uh, moving forward. Culturally, with the DOD and the commercial world, I personally see those worlds as so intertwined. I mean, just we, we have global allied partnerships. We have partnerships with so much of just the tech community around the country. And we already talked earlier about how that, that government R&D piece adds a foundation to so many different things, whether people know it or not. But I think that we do sometimes have an idea um, in some places of our social dialogue that, you know, the military is bad. Um, And so, um, you know, I look at Google a number of years ago. And um, so we had the, you know, we had a a project that, uh, you know, was all over the headlines at the time that, um, you know, that Google had to kind of back away from um, because, folks inside Google were saying, we're not comfortable working with the Department of Defense. Um, they have now come back to, hey, we see this is an important partnership for us with SpaceX. I know the biography um, you know, just came out and kind of had Elon Musk taking a little heat uh, the last couple days, um, turning off Starlink um, in the middle of uh, some things the Ukrainians were trying to do. Um, and so they also learned from that um, on both sides and developed Starshield as something that is uh, independently operated by whoever is, is purchasing it. Um, and then I saw recently, too, there was an open source con- conference that Anduril was sponsoring. And then even though, I mean, Anduril has been pretty open about being a defense-related startup, um, you know, bleeding red, white, and blue. I mean, global global red, white, and blue democracy. Um, and, you know, a week before the event, um, the open source uh, lead of the conference said, hey, get out of here, Andrew, because, you know, because you, you're defense related. And I, I think that it's just very short-sighted. Um, and it it only takes a moment to look, I mean, honestly, the Russia-Ukraine situation, I, I feel like should be putting things in perspective for people that maybe have forgotten that the world isn't always as peaceful as we'd like it to be, and that you have to have these capabilities ready, and that you have to have people ready to defend, um, and you have to have people ready to help our allies. And I think that we forget that sometimes. And when we forget that, we do things like say, I don't want to partner with the DOD. Um, I think the DOD also um, sees those mistakes, well, I'll call them mistakes in time, um, and says, oh, well, I don't know if I can partner with commercial industry. Can I, can I trust commercial industry to have my interests at heart? And you know, that's, that's, a, li- that's a life cycle thing. Um, now, if you look at, at our traditional defense industrial base, um, those are the folks that, that the government has relied on consistently over time that will come in and absolutely develop that capability for that one use case and make no bones about it um, and you know, does remember. And so the government sees that and says, okay, this is what we need. And we do, but we also need 
the company that is going to develop this technology with such great focus, bringing in everything, including the open source community. Um, and it, I mean, quite frankly, who's not using open source code that, that you can even name in a, tech, in a tech company? And so I think on both sides, there's a lot of learning to be done there. I think that we've made some good progress, but the headlines seem to shift sentiment. Um, and I think if, you know, if we can get to kind of consistency in, in what is important and kind of that, that code of ethics, um, I, I think we'll be in a good place. Easier said than done, of course. Yeah. So I was where I was going to get to. What would what would you recommend if you're now now you're out? You'll probably be talking to a lot of startups again of who may want to do work with the government. What would be your kind of first, you know, what's your next minimal viable step? And then what what should be the next step or two if you're in government, you're not sure or you want to like what's the first step both sides could take? to help um, one get a level of understanding, which then can lead to uh, understanding where there's some trust and, and opportunities. I would say first that I advise more companies to not enter government than I advise them to enter government. And a lot of people have an idea that going into government will be really easy. They'll just have contracts handed to them and they'll make millions of dollars and it'll just be, it'll be awesome. Um, and it's not that easy. I think that there are a couple types of companies that do really well um, with maybe fewer roadblocks. Companies that truly want to do really interesting research with a lot of risk, the government is really good at sponsoring those companies. And I think the Cibber program is a perfect place to, to de-risk an idea. Um, the other type of company that does really well is a company that really, really knows the government, really knows the use case and can dive in and just have that customer empathy from day one, maybe because they were a special operator and they know that mission, um, maybe because they were a space guy and they know that mission and they know exactly what capability they want to bring and they can bring the tech around them, but they, they kind of are the user-centered design just embodied. Um, those types of companies can do pretty well. You've had a couple of companies, and this is kind of a new breed, Andrew actually is one of them, where you have some folks that they believe greatly in the mission and they are patient capital and they have no problem throwing um, a good amount of venture dollars at a defense startup. It's, it has been rare. It's been more common recently. Um, but I, I think that is kind of another place where you have a lot of people behind you supporting you, you have the capital that allows you to rapidly develop capabilities without kind of being on a government buy cycle, um, which I think we can acknowledge is slower than the sales cycle in the commercial world. But I think that, you know, that's kind of who does well. Um, I think also that people see the ones that do well and say, oh, well, I'll get a Sibber and then it'll be great. I'll get a phase one, it'll go to phase two, it'll go to phase three, it'll be awesome. I'll find, I'll, once I get in the door, I'll find exactly where my use case is. And sadly, that is more than often not true. Um, it is not too hard to get a phase one. It is very hard to get a phase two. You have to find that customer. They have to have the capital. They have to understand how you're different from the other guy. They have to have that competence to do that. Um, and a direct competence in the technologies involved, which maybe they've never used before, as well as that mission application and how that compares with 
probably other companies they've never heard of, maybe even including some established companies. And so it becomes pretty hard. And I do actually see a couple players on the capital side um, filling in. Um, there are a couple of funds in particular that I can think of that do a really good job of picking some of those winners, capitalizing them, helping coach them through entering government. And I think that is an incredibly healthy part of the ecosystem too. I probably missed part of this question. No, no, it's it's good. I mean, I, we've talked her. I mean, I think a challenge is the government buys a solution. It doesn't buy technology. And so sometimes you can have a great technology, but the government rarely invests just in the technology. It's got to be uh, used. But what would you say on the government side? So you're a program manager. You want to talk to the startup community. You want to understand who else is out there besides the prime contractor that the office has used for 10 years. What would be, how would you advise them to kind of start getting up to speed and understand they, they make sure they understand the full decision space? Yeah, so I, I want to back up a second to something you said a moment ago about the government buy solutions. We don't buy technology. So uh, in the cyber program, we do buy technology, but then we pivot as we need a, as, as we need um, a greater integrated solution. And I do remember a CIO telling companies that the number one thing that they could do for me is work together. Um, to bring the best technology together into an integrated solution. And I do see that as a huge opportunity for the integrators and I'm seeing them do it more, which is really healthy. Um, so, um, so I think you're absolutely right. And I think if people understand that, yes, that is how we buy at any, at any level of real spend. A scaling spend. Scaling spend, yeah. right, exactly. But in the beginning, I guess we we kind of maybe we invest in technology, but but you're, we don't scale necessarily the technology. Right. Exactly, and I think it takes the companies a minute to realize that, but it's an important thing to realize. Um, I do think that I'll, I'll tell you a couple trends that I appreciate. I enjoy that PEOs and senior executives, and sometimes just the tech community writ large, they're engaging with the venture community. Uh, because the venture community really is an incredible sensor for what's happening market-wide. And um, companies like Andreessen Horowitz, they do a really great job of helping people to understand what the market is, is doing and kind of sharing some ideas about maybe uh, you know, sharing both ways on the government saying, well, these are our needs, this is where we'll maybe be investing. Um, so shared market awareness, that's a good thing. Um, I see folks uh, engaging in vendors at conferences that's good education both ways. Um, I mean, industry days are always a good way, but the big players kind of dominate those areas. Then it comes down to relationships. You know, so you have places like AFWorks and SoftWorks, near and dear to your heart, I know, that act as that front door. Um, but especially since COVID, um, it's, there are different levels of understanding of how to use those front doors. And it also comes down to there are so many people knocking on that front door that it's really hard for the government to understand differentiation. And so even though that front door is meant to be there to level the playing field, it still comes down to partially relationships and partially hustle. You, you can develop relationships through hustle and through really, really nailing that elevator pitch. But then it, you know, it becomes much more like selling to a corporation. You know, you, you have to be on that on that buy list. You have to develop the relationship. You have to be on the radar, and then you have to deliver. When we talk about the cultural issue, 
something that comes to mind for me on, on the private sector side is the government gets a lot of heat as the buyer for things that they could be doing better. But I know very well that the private sector can be a stronger partner as well. I'm curious if you have any thoughts or advice to listeners, maybe on the private sector side, about how they can be stronger partners. I, I think it really goes both ways still. Um, you know, I think because I've lived in both worlds, um, people definitely share with me the horrors of, of both sides of this. You know, on the government side, uh, at the senior levels, we'll say, come on, guys, if, if this isn't aligned to what we need, tell us, um, you know, work with us. Let's, let's be upfront and, and deliver what we need, you know, even if maybe we didn't get it right in the contract the first time. And on the vendor side, they want that too. But if a vendor comes and says, oh, I, I want to change this, a lot of times the government at the level that's administering the contract will say, oh, well, they're trying to pull one over on me. They're just trying to take more money. Um, and there's kind of maybe a little bit of, um, I, I see often just not wanting to be tricked kind of thing. Um, and so in that chain somewhere, I think we, we have a little bit of a breakdown. And I've unfortunately heard more often than not on the vendor side, we're trying to be upfront. We're trying to share exactly where our incentives would be aligned, but we're not actually being listened to or the senior levels absolutely wanna do this, but it's not being executed. And so that's really unfortunate because everybody wants the same thing, but then we don't, we don't execute it that way. Um, there are legitimate times too that, um, you know, a vendor will come back and say, okay, I know that's what you want, but in the bid, you decided that you were going to pay $2 million for this $10 million project. But if you really want that $10 million answer, um, we're going to have to raise, raise our bid. That's a foul on both sides. Absolutely a foul. Well, why didn't you bid what was actually needed to complete what we said we wanted? Well, why did you award something that was absolutely unachievable and basically flag that you were going to buy this based on price? Um, and, and that's been, I mean, that's been the problem for, you know, 20 years, right? Um, so I, I think that's something where we definitely have to, to listen and probably follow up and pick where we really want to shift those incentives. I think I've seen us do it really, really well. Um, and I don't know if it's maybe inconsistency in how we do the, the contracts, um, but uh, I mean, it's the same thing in, in um, deploying tech. We can do it. We show that we can do it all the time, but there are pockets of excellence and then pockets where we're gonna get caught every time. Yeah, I think one of the challenges is we're such a big department, differentiating the work and figuring out how to contract especially if you don't know the technology well, you can contract for it like you're building a piece of hardware when it's a different. So I think, and a lot of what you did was help raise the competence level. Um, let's talk a little bit about talent uh, because one of the things I've really admired about you was you were a example for other folks to see of how you can really make an impact in this giant bureaucracy without having lived in the bureaucracy for 25 years and inspire other 17 year olds to go do an internship. What, and I know you, that was a big thing for you when you were in, how do you see the DOD um, thinking about talent? What's working? What other things could they do to um, better inform folks who may have no idea? They see the Pentagon driving by, but they have no idea how it works uh, and maybe want to go give it a try. 
On the on the really positive side, I hear more executives say, I want to contribute. I either want to, um, I actually had a, a, a billionaire tell me, you know, I know I'm too old to put on my flight suit, but how do I, how do I jump into this? And he was thinking about, well, do I, do I throw some money behind some funds that will go after companies that deliver capabilities we really need? Do I maybe, you know, talk, brush off some of my ties and, and go take a, you know, an executive role in the Pentagon? Um, a lot of, a lot of founders have, have shared with me when I exit, I absolutely want to jump into government. And, and I think it's wonderful to hear people expressing that desire and, I've seen it work more recently too. Uh, When I was hired as an HQE, um, we didn't really talk about HQEs as much and it it hadn't really worked out super well. But now there are a number of HQEs that we have that are there, they've stayed for a long time, they've made a difference, maybe they've transitioned to other things. Um, Aaron Weiss was another. And, um, And we're showing too that people can contribute for a period of time, they can go, they can come back. It's great. Um, I think on the more junior side, um, we have lower propensity to serve, which is you know which is hurting us for a variety of reasons. Except in Space Force, actually, everybody's like, "Oh man, Space Force, <laughs> that is pretty cool," and I think that's great. You know, Space Force, um, you know, it it in in everything that they do, you know, they can kind of they can embrace the geek. Like, you want to go do amazing tech come join the Space Force. Um, and I think on the branding side, they've done really well too. Um, and I think people uh, agree that space is maybe less divisive. Um, and so I, I think that, um, you know, if that's where people want to serve, bring them in, it's great. Um, I think that the middle levels are tough too, but there is so much benefit to government service. I, I forget who it was who wrote an op-ed on this in this past week. It might've been, it might've been McChrystal. Um, just kind of making the argument that everyone should serve in whatever way it is. It could be military, it could be nonprofit. And that is something that I actually really do believe. I, I think the Israelis got that right. I don't think everybody should necessarily do military service, but everyone should do some sort of service. Um, and we're the type of country where, you know, since World War II, I don't think we have told anyone that they had to serve. And that's something that I think we're proud of. But I would love to see more people choose to. And there are a lot of people in the country too, and a lot of parts of our, our country where there used to be great industries and there are not those great industries anymore. And, um, and you know, a lot of communities that have lost a point of pride as a result of that, but there could be new pride also in service. And so I, I think that um, kind of focusing on people that um, they have so much that they want to give and maybe haven't had the opportunity to give all that they can. Um, just from kind of, we are what we observe as we grow up. You know, it, a lot of people want to do what their parents did. You know, what if you can't, but you didn't have another example? Um, and I think that's a place where actually government service really can fill a gap too. Um, so I don't know how we, I don't know how we jump into that, but uh, I know I'll, I'll preach it from a couple mountaintops. And again, I think your story is a great one for our listeners to think about, too, and especially this beautiful balance you talked about between the private sector, industry, and government. Um, I wanted to just quickly get your take on the threat landscape. We talked about cyber very quickly. Um, There had been some recent high-profile breaches. Are the computers fixed? Where do we stand? Anything keep you up at night these days? (laughs) Well, I mean, it's a... a 
pretty wild. Uh, it's a pretty wild world. Um, I definitely hope that we will maintain our focus on Ukraine and see it through. Um, I definitely hope that we will continue to see a lot of investment in uh, cybersecurity and especially post-quantum encryption. Um, and even knowing what our inventory is, I think those are really important areas that we need to continue investing in. Um, and yeah, the rest of it is just, can we, can we continue to deliver capabilities and come together as quickly as we need to? Um, if you look at our competitors around the world, they're not, they're not arguing over whether, um, whether they should help defense or not. Um, and, you know, we, unfortunately, you know, we, we have some things that divide us um, and that's sad. And um, I think as much as we can kind of come together and realize that I, I do fully believe that at our core, everybody wants the same thing, but we've gotten a little maybe obsessed with labels. Um, and um, I think that that is something we have to deal with as a nation. And that that is something that will also help with bringing together uh, commercial and defense. Mm -hmm. And it's it's frustrating to hear about those recent headlines, the Andrew getting pulled pulled out of the conference. But I think we've seen so much progress in this space, and that's in large part thanks to leaders like you who've gone in and and helped to drive that change. Um, so thank you, Lauren, for coming on the show and sharing some of those stories and the advice to our listeners who are trying to help with this problem as well. Um, again, I think this idea of the balance between the two and, and cross pollination between um, the private sector and and U.S. government are key. Um, so thank you again for joining us. Thanks a lot. Great to see you guys. Good to see you. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Building the Base, a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.